What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebound and Safety. This is the last episode of the Health and Wellbeing mini series. I hope you've enjoyed it, but let's jump into the intro and we can get into the podcast. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution and one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviours. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risk What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is the YouTube channel and podcast doing exactly what it says on the tin. We're here to change the perception of health and safety and we're here to challenge those over-the-top crazy health and safety gone mad practices. So if you're new here, hit that subscribe button and the bell so you never miss another episode. If you're on the podcast, you can hit follow or like or any of those buttons that look remotely positive and they do some weird algorithm stuff and they just, they just make good things happen which essentially means more people listen to the podcast. That is the cool thing that the algorithm does. Anyway, the last episode of Health and Miniseries, Health, anyway, the last of the Health and Wellbeing Miniseries, how have you found it? Honestly, how have you found it? Let me know. I want, I want to know how, how you found it. I told you really frank and honestly in the last episode that I've been going through this kind of journey with this. This Health and Wellbeing Miniseries has been really eye-opening for me. And like I said last week, today's episode is with a lady called Tanya Hewitt. Now, I had no intention for putting Tanya on the end of this, but like I said last week, it it really kind of brings everything we've learned. And it talks about how we can do this, as we talk about, sorry, how we can bring this into our working lives, how we can create meaningful, (laughs) how we can create meaningful employment. And I just, I love that, that, just that phrase, meaningful employment. Like, that's so true, isn't it? Like how many of us, when somebody goes, how's work? How's work, James? Yeah, it's all right, pays the bills, don't it? Or how many of us go even further than that and we go, yeah, same shit, different day. Or how many of us go, yeah, shit. But you don't leave. How many of you are stuck in a job that you've had for years and years and years and it's just ain't right for you. It, do you know what? You may even be a health and safety professional and you're just not happy. And that's probably because this isn't right for you. Or is it just the business you're working with? Because the, the work you're doing is not meaningful. Sometimes I think safety professionals can really struggle with just the phrase or the, the way that people look at health and safety being meaningful. You, you don't, maybe you don't feel like your employer thinks that you're meaningful. Not you as a person, but like your department. There's so much to that phrase of meaningful employment. How many of your shop floor staff think that what they do is meaningful? There's so much here. And I think systems thinking is something I've been going on in my head and I've been going on and on and on about it for a long time. But this could be a big thing here. Like, I think systems thinking for me is so entwined with this. It's acknowledging that everything that we do and all the different people and different compartments and and, and departments of workplaces are interrelated. They're, they're individual cogs in the machine. And I think if we 
can start with that and explain that to people that like you are so important in this process. It is like you are not just a number to us. You are vital. You may just think you turn up and you get this thing and you put it in a machine or you turn up and you make the cement for the builders because you're just a labourer or you turn up and you, you, you just clean the toilets because you're just a cleaner and everyone looks down at the cleaner. Whatever it is that you think are those preconceptions of your role, you're just a health and safety professional. You just turn up to make our job right. Every, every single job has a preconception and nine times out of ten they are negative but we need to change that we need to understand that every single one of us are an integral part integral integral part integral are an important part of what we do in the workplace they are vital they're a cog in a machine that drives another cog and they are driven by another cog and that cog is driven by another cog yeah, that is system thinking. And if that you remove that cog, the machine will only work up to the point of that cog. And then the rest of the machine doesn't work. That's what businesses are. So when we create meaningful employment, it becomes so much more. People can do so much more. And I think that phrase, me and Tanya for a long time were talking about what the hell we're going to talk about in this podcast. We knew we wanted to talk about something, but Tanya had been on a couple of podcasts and we didn't want to recreate the world. But I, but we, I knew that if I just had Tanya on a caller, we could just have an amazing chat and just record it. But we thought, do we need to find something that we can focus on? And then Tanya came up with this phrase, meaningful employment around some of the work she's been doing. She just mentioned it in this conversation and I was like, that's it. And we had this conversation and as we're talking, I figured this would be great at the end of the health and wellbeing mini series. And that's why it's here. I met Tanya on the infamous Rongan PDCS calls, the weekly calls that I've not been able to go on for the last couple of weeks actually and I'm pining for them. Um, they are so good, but anyway, it's not about that. Maybe we get Ron back on at some point and we talk about these calls. But she's a lady that just, he's on all of the calls essentially, and she just drops these little bits of genius in. She quotes research like she's this walking library, like she's an absolute genius, especially compared to me. Um, and to boot, an all-round lovely lady as well. I was texting her a couple of weeks ago on a messaging her or whatever on LinkedIn and we were just chatting away. And I was saying, we need to get this thing on. We need to find a time to chat. And she was like, what are you doing now? And I was like, well, I'm just sitting in the garden reading some research by uh, David Proven, actually, uh, drinking a beer because it was a lovely summer's day. She was like, are you up for a chat? Yeah, all right. I'll come on for a chat. Like, I've got 20 minutes. I was, on a, I was on a Zoom call for like two hours with her. She's just a great person to talk to. Awesome. She runs a business called Beyond Safety Compliance. She's a physics, human, and organizational performance specialist. Like, that's a cool thing to be a specialist in, man. She's a doctor of philosophy, which is just wicked. And Ron also runs these, like, philosophy chats every week where I go in and I'm completely out of my depth. And Tanya is just like, she loves it. And the way she talks about it is just wicked. And you can just talk to anyone at any level. I love, I just love it. Um, so today we're going to talk all about that creating meaningful employment, looking beyond safety and compliance, you know, about the potential of our relationships with employers, the potential impact as well that a business can have when it creates more meaningful employment. I'm talking beyond the workplace. I'm not talking about improving your, your sales. I'm talking about impact beyond our workplace. 
So, without further ado, let's jump into the podcast. Don't forget to go buy some merch, people, www.rebrandedsafety.com. You can do that after this awesome episode. But let's get into this conversation with Tanya Hewitt, who is an absolute legend. And it's just a great chat. I'm really upset with finishing this mini-series. I really am. I feel emotional. And you can tell that because I'm waffling on. I, I do this all the time, don't I? Waffle, waffle, waffle. Let's jump into our conversation with Tanya. Always available. Um and probably masks should be in the glove compartment and you know in various other places spare masks kind of things so mm. it's it's a different reality yeah well that's yeah that's a really good way to put it a different a different reality it really is isn't it i think i'm struggling to come to terms with the fact that like this new normal you know i miss i miss the old normal i miss going into a shop and like I'm not, I'm not a touchy feely person anyway. I like my personal space, but like, I miss not having to worry about that. Like now, yes. I worry about my personal space. Now I, I'm very conscious of people all the time. It's like, it's like your cognitive kind of capability or capacity, probably a better word, is full of just who's where, where are people, how close are you, where am I, am I too close to someone else, have I washed my hands, I, you know, have, have I got sanitizer, it's just like, wow, this is, this is the new norm, but it's tiring as well, like it's a massive shift in how we live. It's interesting, there was one, uh, one uh, podcast that I had listened to of uh, a woman who lives in a, in a high rise, and not thinking that she was an anxious person, but realizing, oh my God, once I leave my apartment, look at everything that is communal after that, you know? So if there's the elevator buttons and then going in the elevator, having it stop at another floor and having other people come in the mm. elevator and, you know, and then you get down to the lobby and then there's all these pull doors. And like, <laughs> she said, just leaving the building for a walk was, was harrowing and you know, she didn't think of what life was like for people with chronic anxiety, mm. but now she's starting to realize what they're living through. But I also heard, and I think she was from, from England, actually, a woman who has chronic anxiety and absolutely loving this because A, people started to understand what her world was like, mm. and B, the rules of life were pretty simple you know mm. stay home um you know wash your hands stay away from people like they, i can do that it's <laughs> not all the complicated world of social engagement and body language and all this stuff you know yeah. she 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 kind of this was simple and followable <laughs> so that's interesting i never thought yeah. of it like that i never thought of it like that like it's <laughs> Really interesting. It's funny that my um my wife, bless her, because she's pregnant, she um she like hasn't left the house pretty much in like three months. <laughs> she's just poor, poor okay. woman's like stuck inside. Other than shorter walking the dog, I think that that's like the only. Oh bless her, she can't even do that now. Bless her, like she bumps so big. But <laughs> early on, she could she could walk the dog, and she did that as a bit of a keep her sanity. But 
we got like a local uh, little kind of like shopping complex called Russian Lakes. It's really nice. It's got like a massive lake and loads of restaurants and cafes. And then there's loads of shops and you can go shopping and stuff. And it's, it's relatively new around that area. And um, it just, we since it's been there, I would say we probably went there nearly every weekend. It was just really nice. Oh, wow. Could, you could do everything. You could go get a coffee. You could do your shopping. You could walk the dog. You could have a nice dinner. So whether we went there just one one night to go out for dinner or whether we went there for the day shopping or to the, there's a cinema there as well, there's literally everything you could need. And more than I went there, my wife went there a lot. Right? Yeah. She loved <laughs> it. She absolutely loved it. And her mum did as well. Um so when it relaxed a little bit and the shop started open and about last weekend, I think it was Sherry, my wife, she said, um, oh, I'm going to go Russian lakes. And I was like, okay, are you, are you sure? She said, yeah, yeah I'm going to go Russian lakes. Bearing in mind, she'd not been to the shops since all this happened. So yeah. she, did, she never experienced the queuing, the one meter gaps, the one way systems or, you know, all the screens at the till, right. all this stuff. Yes. never experienced any of that stuff. We were there like 10 minutes and she was like, this is horrible. I want to go home. <laughs> I want to go home. This is horrible. This is not what I wanted. Like, you know, you, I think you kind of just went there with the expectation that, oh, we're back to normal now. But you're still right. in your brain thinking, oh, it's back to normal now. We will just go go back to the lakes and, and that's it. But like you quite rightly stated earlier, you know, this is a new world now. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. The other interesting <laughs> thing is, is the other interesting thing I was thinking the other day, I've never stood one meter close to anyone anywhere, I don't think. Like one meter plus is our current UK guidance. Now one meter plus something. Yeah, like you guys are at or... a meter and a half. Australia's at, at a meter and a half too. We're at two meters, which is interesting. Well, technically, yeah. our guidance is technically still two meters. There is a there's quite a big misconception of this in, in the UK. So Technically, we are still at two meters, but it's where you can't achieve two meters. You should have one meter plus mitigations. So that's one meter plus a mask, one meter plus a 15 minute limit, one meter plus screens or something like that. So it's one meter oh, plus wow. plus mitigations, which I actually think is quite clever. Um, it enables pubs to open. It enables restaurants. And I think gyms are, are opening this weekend. Actually, yeah, I think it's this weekend. You know, theatres can open now. Obviously, they've got to adjust. They've got to come up with stuff. But it's interesting that people have perceived that as one metre and they're like, right, back to normal. And I'm like, well, there's the two arguments here. One, when did you ever stand one metre close to anyone anyway? Like, unless you're, one of those, <laughs> unless you're one of those weird people that get really, like, way too close when you're talking. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, dude, back up a bit. Or, yeah. you know... You've, you've completely misinterpreted this and it's not one meter it's two meters but then one meter where you can't so but yeah when i read the one meter thing i was like i'm not sure i would stand one meter next to anyone anyway like right yeah but yeah uh, I, mean, I suppose the only times when you go to a pub and it's really busy and then you're like right next to someone or a football match or a rugby match or something i suppose but yeah interesting anyway we, this, yeah. <laughs> this, I, I started recording because I thought this is quite an interesting conversation. So I'll just start recording. Um, so, oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I caught you out there. Um, so, but we, I didn't, I didn't record that you talking about, about your underwear and, and the COVID mask and stuff like that. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
um so anyway tanya welcome to the podcast why don't you give us an introduction into yourself well thank you so much james um uh an introduction to myself uh that's that's really interesting i was maybe i'll i'll say that this is uh best described when i was at um the safety two conference in florida um so this was a last year and uh, there were about 70 people there, I guess. And everybody was asked to stand up and introduce themselves. And at a conference, I, Jesus. At a conference, yeah. Well, it was, it was a workshop, say, okay. say that. So, and um, uh, I noticed that everybody um, introduced themselves with a job title and a, a company you know yeah, yeah. so they very much the, the the standard response to that is oh i am a health and safety professional working for whomever yeah, but yeah. um i had chosen to say that um you know i came to this uh, conference because i'm very interested in learning <laughs> this topic and i'm very Uh, excited to, you know, to hear from all of you about, you know, your experiences. And I was one of the earlier people who uh, answered that question. I was at the first table and uh, nobody else deviated from the standard script. Everybody else identified the job title and the company for whom they worked. So it was, uh, it was quite revealing that uh, people tend uh, to answer, you know, tell me about yourself by identifying um, their work yeah. as opposed to really themselves. Yeah. So that's, you know, become the, the expected response. That, that's fascinating. I, 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 there's, there's two things in that. What, well, there's three things. One, you actually haven't introduced yourself. So we'll come back to that. You're not getting away <laughs> with that. Number two, I've, I've done a lot of uh, training um, so small groups, um, a lot, like probably, probably the biggest group I've trained, I've done actual training to would probably be about 20 people. So for example, you get a room of 20 people and we would say, right, I'm going to do the thing that everybody hates. I'm going to go around the room and I want you all to introduce yourself. Right, and everyone goes, oh. I'm going to say, all I want to know, all I want to know is your name and one thing interesting about yourself. I don't want to know where you work. I don't want to know how long you've been with the company. I don't want to know where your workplace is, how big you're building it. I don't want to know any of that. I just want to know your name and I know you personally by something interesting you've done in your life. Two things happen then. Most people go, oh, they haven't got anything interesting about myself. That's what most people say. Uh, when actually nine times out of 10, everybody's got something interesting about themselves. They just don't think it's interesting because they expect interesting to be something so huge. And, and like, I once, you know, fought off James Bond on a moving train, you know what I mean? Right. Something crazy <laughs> like that. Um, and that, and then the other interesting thing is, is normally what happens in my experience is the first two or three people normally set the tone for the room. Now, what you just said completely contradicts that. So it, normally some people like I've seen it before where we, 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 I was going around the country doing this fire safety training. We had a lot of stuff to cram into one day. So we did this around the room and I had a trainer with me and he was a much more of a technical 
trainer like i'm much more of a personal kind of trainer and uh, and he was like we just need to cut the introductions because it's taking too long and i was like no i'm not we're not cutting that and he's like yeah well we need to cut it and i was like all right i'll just i'll make sure that people keep it short and sharp and um <laughs> that day we had that conversation that day the first guy was like hi uh my name's bob um and i work at and he just didn't listen to anything i said and he just give us his life story it was like i was born on 19th of january in the 80s <laughs> you know what I, mean? I work here i've got four kids and i was like dude stop talking please and, um, and then what that did is set the tone for the rest of the everybody copied him everybody went on that same framework who they are where they work you know where they live so then something in and i was like jesus it's gonna be like two hours by the time we get around this whole room <laughs> Um, and that seemed to be the, the thing every time the first or two or three people they set the framework and then and then everyone else kind of mimicked that which is interesting because you kind of challenged the framework and then the room still decided to stick to the the kind of boring yeah. classic my name's james and i work for blah blah how boring is that so <laughs> tanya why don't you introduce yourself all right <laughs> so I have um, an interest in trying to get a lot of a lot more people talking about what your podcast talks about. A lot of uh, and and others, you know. There's a there's now an army out there who are talking about um, how classical uh, ways to um, safety and and working writ large are not suiting us any longer. And that's really, uh, that, that's what drives me these days. Cool. Um, so much more of a, a, an academic background, would, it, would that be right fair for me to say that? Or would that incorrect? Okay, so yeah, I have, I do have degrees in my background, but um, so uh, my, I my had PhD. always termed my, my PhD as a, as a midlife crisis thing. <laughs> um, it's, uh, and I also talked about it. I, I said it constantly that I was square pegging it. Um, okay. I, I desperately wanted to study safety science, but, um, there was no safety science. Um, I don't know if, if, even if I had looked out, it, you know, throughout Canada, if there was a, a university offering such a, a degree. Excuse me. And um, I, uh, you know, I, my kids were stable in their school. My husband had a good job. Like it, we were fairly um, entrenched in our community. So I thought, you know, there are two universities in this town. Surely I can find something that is going to work. Um, and you know, I found some. I found something that was going to work, but it certainly wasn't the ideal. I just, I just square pegged it the whole way. <laughs> so, <laughs> I suppose, I suppose that uh, uh, a master's or a doctor is not that bad of a uh, midlife crisis. Most people just go and buy a Ferrari or something. So I think that's quite good. Yes, and I mean, I and I and I said this to people. You know, some people go on trips around the world or buy expensive cars and you know I just I just did a, a, a doctoral degree like it was just the the difference uh, a different thing but it was it was clearly just a, a, a midlife 
crisis kind of thing. <laughs> I like that. I think that's a good midlife crisis. I think we would be a much better world if everybody <laughs> when it got a doctorate <laughs> for, for their midlife crisis instead of a Ferrari or, or whatever else they do. Uh, anyway, we, we, so in, in kind of tone to, to what you're curious and we, we had a chat and we decided we, to be honest, I think Tanya, we could have spoke about any number of things. I think like there was so many things we, and that was what was really difficult for us to actually decide what do we actually want to talk about? And I think both of us would listen to the 20 things, but we finally settled on the subject of meaningful employment because you said that word and I was like, I really like that phrase. I've never heard that it said like that in that context before or those two words together. They really like that. But maybe let's let's start with what like maybe you could define meaningful employment from your point of view. I think uh, probably the best uh, succinct phrase is is not mine. I got it from Todd Conklin, where he says, good work done well for the right reasons. I'm mm. thinking that really captures meaningful employment. You know, good work mm. done well for the right reasons. Mm. There's uh, not a whole lot of people out there, I think, who would be able to say um, that they aspire to that, that they are living that. Mm. Um, yeah it's kind of like when people it's it's interesting it's interesting to the point you just said earlier about when people introduce themselves we tie so much of our identity and ourselves in our work but then yes if if a lot of people you know when, when you hear people say you know oh i love my job and they'll normally follow that up with i'm one of those lucky people that really love my job so there's like assumption that everyone hates their job and you say like, how does right. work? And most people go, meh, but it pays well. It's like, we only work now to pay the bills. So like, I think so, for, for me, meaningful employment would be like, it means something to you. And, and it doesn't matter what that is. It doesn't matter whether you're cleaning, whether you're, you know, a, the, the CEO, whether you're the engineer, the electrician, the picker, the packer, the machine operator. It just means something to you. I'll, I'll never forget one day I'll write a book and, and, and one book will, will have a theory in it that I like to call Marcus's law. Um, and it was about a gentleman that I met called Marcus, surprisingly. See where I got the, the name from. And, and I'll never forget that we had this, um, we'd had like, we had a really bad kind of claim culture in this workplace. It was really like, you could literally slip over a day later. We, we would be sending out a check. Like our insurers loved just paying people off. And it just, it was this horrible cycle we were stuck in. And jokingly, cause I was young and cocky and had like this lads banter with all the machine operators, Marcus, who is, is a good, great lad. He, I can't remember what he did. He hurt himself or something. And I was there and I was like, well, I could expect a claim from you now, one of Marcus. And he was like, I don't want to claim. Why would I claim? I love my job. But he, but some people would look at his job and say he was just a machine operator. And I say that in quotations for anyone that can't see what that I'm making quotes, but you know, he, 
just a kind of manual labor role that starts at shift work and you know most people would hate that job he genuinely just really liked the machines the process the, the job he did he just enjoyed it to the point where he actually took parts home that the engineers didn't want and he built a version or mini version of our machine in his garage he just loved his job you don't have to be something that you've trained at forever or an athlete or whatever to love your job but not me, at all that's what i kind of that's a really long description of what i think meaningful employment would be but but i think marcus's marcus's kind of look on life for me was, was a big impact on me have you heard of a show called dirty jobs that rings a bell but i don't i haven't watched it is it on netflix i'm not sure the discovery channel had uh, produced this i've heard uh, of it it's, a, it's an american it. show but it was a show that looked at, or maybe it's still being produced, honestly, I don't know, but it looks at a lot of these types of, an, uh, of jobs that society looks down upon, right? Mm. Um, and um, I, I, I just watched um, a TED talk of the host of that show yesterday, where he talked about his infamous show, of um castrating sheep so i think this is I, this has gone viral right and this this is the um the show where um he went and talked to before before doing this uh this particular thing so the the host always does the job to mm -hmm. in order to you know understand so if it's uh, you know, cleaning out a sewer or if it's, you know, whatever it is, he, he is part of it. So he has to castrate sheep. But what they did in this town in, in uh, Norway, I think, um, they um, castrated the sheep by um, using their teeth. And, uh, and he looked at this and said, oh, my God, wait a minute. The, no, no, sorry, no, no. Their, their teeth. Yes. The, the person and, uh, yes yes so mm. and he he this freaked him out and he said whoa because he had done his research and had talked to um a whole bunch of regulators in order to understand how this is done properly so there are elastics that you're supposed to use in order to restrict the blood flow and then these things fall off over a week kind of thing and that's the way that he was expecting this to be done. He was gonna be putting elastics around um, mm -hmm. sheep scrotum kind of thing. But um, uh, <laughs> the, the sheep farmer had said, oh, you wanna do that? So he pulled out his drawer of all of these unused elastics, gave him one, and he did put elastics around a sheep that then very obviously in pain was crippling over to a corner and just kind of lay there and um and the, and the host said oh my god that doesn't he doesn't look very well and he says no he probably isn't like he'll probably you know uh, his his next week is going to be horrible you know mm. but the sheep that he was um castrating with his teeth were fine they you know they jumped off the I jumped off the table and were were indistinguishable from the other sheep and this made the the uh the host question 
so much about life. It's really interesting. If you if you look at this TED talk, it's uh, uh, it's very uh, insightful because uh, that was his introspection on what do I know about anything? You know, mm-hmm. I was so sure. I checked with the authorities. I knew the right thing to do. And yet this guy who does it every day didn't, he knew what the rules were, but did it a totally different way that seems actually to be better than anything the authorities had been recommending to do. And um, that, that is just not consistent with our conception of how the world works. And uh, so he had to really figure out, you know, what he was doing, why he was doing it. And that's really the meaningful work. If you are starting to ask yourself these questions, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? Does it align with what I believe? You know, then this, the, this is going to get you to a farther place than just uh, working for the trinkets. The, what, what was called at my, my former workplace, the golden handcuffs. <laughs> so things like the salary, the pension, the benefits, all of this kind of thing. I'll read to you a quote that I had uh, commented on on LinkedIn. I'll see if I can, uh, I won't reveal who it was. But um, uh, in quotes here, he says, don't worry if you don't like the job. Think about the stable career you can build there. Twelve years ago, I got an offer to work at a large organization. I didn't feel the slightest amount of excitement about it. But since it was the first place they gave me an offer at a time I was job searching, a friend of mine suggested it, and I accepted it uh, so I could secure something. Although I knew it wasn't a good fit, I listened to him and accepted the offer. Six months later, I left the position because the nature of the job was not aligned with my values and because I was hating every morning of my life. I understand that sometimes, depending on each person's reality, there's extreme urgency to land a job, but I learned that I have to trust my gut and look for opportunities that really speak to me. Yes, I could have probably built a stable career there, but at what expense? That's why job searching has to be strategic so that we apply to opportunities with potential for us to enjoy what we do while making impactful contributions. Mm. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, that's nice. I um, well, I don't know what to say. Like, I'm speechless. Firstly, I was not expecting us to go on to castrating sheep's testicles with your teeth. That, that, that's a whole new level for the podcast. I love it. I was speechless. Um, I like literally was like, if she asked me my opinion right now, I'm just going to go. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I'm going to have to watch that TED talk. Secondly, I, I, I love that. Yeah, that sounds great. I'm going to have a look at that. I, I ooh, ooh, don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm a yeah. I, yeah, it's 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 a bit of a debate in in the world now, isn't it? Like, but I'm I'm a vegetarian, so like that stuff, like for me, just even harder to watch because I'm just like, oh no. But anyway, anyway, I don't want to don't want to go and t- down that route. Otherwise, we'll we'll definitely lose listeners. Um, but I love that quote. I love that quote, and that, you know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of like 
before before I got the job that I'm in now, like I, I was not not in a great place and was was looking really hard for a job and um in and then halfway through that kind of job search came a global pandemic which is not conducive to a to a job hunt <laughs> but i i the one thing i said to myself was you know i'll i'll know from the job advert whether i want to apply or not and and i i would just skim read the job adverts for i think i think everyone i think I think it's important firstly for me to say everyone has a salary that they need like you 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 or, or are willing to accept let's say that your salary that you're willing to accept right I think go away do your bill work out your bills do the maths work out what salary you want right and and draw your line like and and just say you know this is where I'm going and if you're talking to recruiters say no this is I'm not going any less than that if you don't like it, well, let's go. Because I think I think it is important to acknowledge that we do need to pay the bills. And I think it is important to acknowledge that that can create stress and pressure on a role that you might love. And and because you love that job, it makes it even harder if, if you're suffering because of that same job and it won't pay you enough. So I think that's important to acknowledge. But this, the second point is, it, is I knew that. I knew that salary that I needed or wanted um, based on my, my kind of projections, et cetera. And I would scroll through and I would, the salary would be one of them. But the other things I would look for, compliance. I don't want to work anywhere that's compliance focused. Oh, you've froze. So I'm going to pause. You're, are you there? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Your, fra- your face froze. So I was just double checking it. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking for words like, th- these are words to avoid, by the way, like compliance, uh, officer, uh, Marshall, which was a funny one. I've never seen a job post that said Marshall, health and safety Marshall, but Adam John sent me it the other day. I was like, check this one out. And it was like, Adam, I was like, Marshall, you know, things like that. Uh, phrases like drive accountability down from the top. And I'm just like, Ugh. and they're all phrases that people like and they put in there because they think that that's what people like me want to hear, want to see. And I'm just like, it just turns me off. Um, and and I just I scan for things like that. I scan for the tone of of the of the kind of um, the the job description and, and things like that. And I, and it's interesting. I think when you read one, you know. But then on the flip side, it is extreme. I remember talking to a recruiter, well, loads of recruiters, but I remember talking to one in particular who who's a good kind of like friend of mine. And I said to him, Do you know what? It's really hard for people looking for jobs nowadays because you recruiters just put out the same job advert for every job. I don't know whether I'm applying for the same job every day or whether I'm applying for 20 different jobs because on a different website, but it's the same, but a little bit different, but it's the same. And I'm, Oh, it's Oh, it's a different job. Oh, right. Okay. I'll apply. It's a nightmare. But I think if you know your values, you can go into, you can apply and then you can go into an interview and you, you can look and ask questions based on what you want to see from the job. Um, and it's interesting. An old boss of mine, I was talking to her last night, and she said, you know, when I interview people, she, she said, when I interview people, it's, it's not really technical based. It's value and, and people based. She said, because you pass the screening stage, you wouldn't be in an interview if you weren't technically competent. So now I just want to know whether you're the right person, which I thought was really interesting. You know that um, uh, Charles Schwab interviews in restaurants. Well, when you could do restaurant, you know, things. And what he would do, he would go to, uh, he would go early and he would ask um, the wait staff 
to screw up the order of his guests uh, on purpose. Yeah, nice. And that was the interview. He wanted to see the reaction when something was wrong. I'm doing There's, um There are uh, other ways to interview as well. First off, an interview is not a one-off um, encounter. Mm. You're looking for fit. I mean, this is like getting married off of one date, right? Like, no, you, you, you need to interview off, you know, for a number of encounters. And another thing, your work life, a, a lot of, a lot of constructs that we use in our world, um, we inherit from previous times, like safety is full of them, mm-hmm. which doesn't mean that they were um, misguided and useless when they were constructed. They probably played a role when they, when they were invented, uh, else they wouldn't have been invented. Mm. But um, carrying them forward into an era where they no longer serve our needs is the problem. And it, that's on us for not recognizing that this isn't serving our purposes anymore. One of these is work-life balance. So work-life balance was, I think, helpful at a time when there was um, this um, strong uh, tendency to, um, you know, workaholism and having, you know, uh, absentee fathers and things like this. Mm. But I think now, especially during the pandemic, we have come to realize a better description is work-life integration Mm. because many times people are bringing their lives to their workplace, especially if they just had a fight with their husband or, you know, their kid ran, you know, their uh, kid went to a party and, you know, whatever they're, you know, they're bringing their life to their workplace. And a lot of people are bringing their work home you know, and that's that's where the meaningful employment becomes really important because uh, the more that people don't have a meaningful meaningful work, they're going to it's going to affect them as people because our work is so integral to our identity and who we are, and they're going to come home and offload that to people who had nothing to do with it, being their you know their family members, and this can have consequences you know like you know there can be communication issues in families you know at the worst divorces and all this kind of thing you know like it has societal implications for not not getting this meaningful work right Mm -hmm. but having work-life integration is part of it going back to to interviewing um i know that uh pat lencioni um talks about this a lot and not having it as a single encounter, having it as multiple encounters. And in fact, he talks about um, interviewing while going shopping. So, you know, I actually have to go and uh, pick up a a present for my niece's birthday party, would you come with me? And that allows the interviewer to see how the interviewee interacts with the common day person, the cashier, you know, the, the person who opens the door, all this kind of thing. And, and they're watching all the time on how this person is, in, is interfacing with other people. And that, that is hugely insightful. 
in in terms of what they're looking for for that the roles that they want the people that they want to employ the other thing is that they uh, because they they truly believe in work-life integration they they invite the family to the office because they want to be able to get a feel for who the family are who the family is and the family should know who we are as a company and so there's a there's a whole lot of this work-life integration that i think could be um introduced more in even to the way that we hire let alone the way that we run our run our organizations love that i think i think that that interview process do you know what i i would know i would know if i wanted to employ someone from from those 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 interactions 100 i would know whether i want to work with you every day or not because you know i'm just thinking about even even a couple of like i'll say acquaintances um that you know i've been out for dinner with and i'm just like you know he, don't people people are different you know what i mean but i i cannot stand when people are rude to waiters and really strict and and st- it, it takes a lot for me to be like quite stern with someone you've got to really piss me off for me to be like no you you know this is this is like the fifth time you've sent me this meal i just want my money back it's probably the worst i would ever be but some people that are just really rude the whole way through like they look down on these people i'd know straight away i would know straight away you're you're, you're not you're not for me so i love that i love that like telling them to screw or you the could order. go the other you could go the other way too right when when pat lencioni talks about a humility being the most important quality he qualifies what he means by humility because um you can also get the person at the restaurant who won't say anything. Oh, it wasn't what I ordered. And I don't really like this, but you know, that's okay. You know, Mm. you don't want to be self-deprecating either. You don't want to not have self-esteem because that's another kind of thing. You need to still have self-esteem. You still need to have value in yourself and you still need to be able to, um, you know, advocate for yourself and so forth, but you don't have to do it aggressively. Yeah. And you don't have to be, you know, uh, a, a mean person in doing so. Mm. So, I mean, you're, you don't necessarily, you're not looking for somebody with, with no humility at all. Mm. You're just looking for somebody who thinks more about others than they do about themselves. Oh, I'd like to think how I would react. Like, I know I wouldn't be aggressive, but I think I would probably just eat the meal. I don't think I would say anything. I think I would just eat it. Like, I don't know. That's just the way I... Yeah, I, um, I don't know. I'd love to be a fly in the wall to watch myself. Here's a funny story for you, right? Which is quite, which is quite, um, quite apt. My, I think, second date. It was like it was an early date with my now wife. Uh, so we worked together anyway, bit before. Um, so we knew each other quite well. But it was, I think, it was like our first proper, second proper date, second proper date, and we went to Nando's, which is like a massive restaurant chain, and. Uh, and my wife loved the olives uh, that, you, that you get from, from Nando's. So she, we got in there and, uh, and she went, oh, my God, I love the olives here. I'm going to order some olives. Do you like olives? I had never tried an olive in my entire life. Right? I'd lived quite a sheltered life up until that point. Never tried an olive. And an olive is a quite an acquired taste. Like you either like it or you don't. What did I say? 
I love olives. Yeah, get the olives. I love olives. I remember to this day these olives turning up, and I must have watched that little bowl the whole way down to the table. My wife, <laughs> my wife just started, picks up a toothpick, bless her. She gives me a toothpick. She goes, boom. And I just held this toothpick, and I was like, can do this change put it in <laughs> keep trying to keep nonchalant at the same time put put the put the toothpick in the olive pick it up put it in my mouth cautiously chewed thank god i love olives like i love olives and thank god because <laughs> i would have been unbelievably embarrassing i thought i got oh my god this is horrible i should have been like i thought you just said right. that you loved them so i feel like i would be the kind of guy that would just go you know, the, the guys, is everything all right you order? Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but then you're going to get probably, you know, when things go wrongly at work, they're not going to say anything. Mm. They're going to, they're going to, you know, um, well, it's only me. It's a, you know, I'm the only one with this problem. Like, you know, it's not that bad. I can probably, you know, if I just do this work around, I can probably make it work. I don't want to disturb. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to, you know, all this mm. kind of thing. Um, you can still, uh, you know, and, and how many um, accident reports, you know, have been because people don't want to rock the boat, right? Who don't mm. want to speak up. So. Definitely. You know, it, you don't necessarily gain too much if you go too far on that that end of the spectrum. I mean, you certainly don't want somebody who berates the waiter and you know all this kind of thing. That that's that's not good. But you don't necessarily want the oh, the uber meek either. Yeah. So yeah. that's you're looking for a, a good, healthy, um, as I said, self esteem but thinking more about others than themselves. Mm. And then what, what do the, that kind of family work, fam, work, work home life integration, what, what do you think that, that kind of looks like when you're working? Like, let's say you're, you've got your existing business and you start, you mentioned about bringing family into the workplace and stuff like that, which I think is quite interesting. I think, I feel like smaller businesses would be really good at that. Like local family, maybe well, family you know what? businesses. It's, it's interesting. Um, so the poster child of organizational health is Southwest Airlines. I'm learning all of this from Pat Lencioni and all of his materials. So for example, what does that look like? That looks like when you are sick, like, like uh, with the flu kind of sick, that the company sends you um, a basket of fruit to your door, mm. you know, hoping that you're, that you're doing all right and you're going to be getting better. It looks like when you come back to work after surgery or something, that an executive level meeting will realize, oh, look, there's Bill's car who just pulled into the driveway. Mm. And the executive level meeting will stop what they're doing, line the hallway, and clap as Bill walks in, celebrating Bill for returning to the workplace. It looks like the CEO, uh, when going into a hospital for some kind of 
um, routine visit or whatever, you know, whatever they were there for. And knowing that there's an employee who um, gave birth to a premature kid who is now, you know, at the hospital every day because, you know, the neonate may or may not get through this kind of thing. Mm. And the CEO comes up to this person in the cafeteria at the in, in the cafeteria at the um, hospital, knowing not only her name, but the name of the premature baby, and asking if they're doing okay. It's knowing your employees. It's you... really knowing your employees. Pat Lencioni had said that when managers interview and they say things like i had 18 people i was responsible for 18 people i had 18 people reporting to me and um he'll say okay so tell me about them and and he's like well, what do you mean is it well you know tell me about uh give me give me one of your employees like you know oh well there was lucy and and she was working on this and this and that. okay that's great so what were the concerns in her life? What do you mean? Well, I mean, you know, did she, what, what, what were the concerns in her life? Did she, did she have children? Did she have aging parents? Did she, you know, was she involved in the community and having it? Like, what, what were the concerns in her life? Well, I don't know. That, that's, that's her personal life. Ah, so you were involved in transactional management, not at all relationship-based management. But we know that if employees feel anonymous, exclusively dealt with in a transactional way, and their managers know nothing about them as people, as individuals, as, as contributors who can bring value, then that is a recipe for um, employee disengagement. Definitely. People have to feel as though they're known. Mm. I, I, yeah, I, I, I love that, and I, I think you know I've got such a good example for, for, that when it goes right and when it goes wrong. I used to work in a team, and I know some of these teams listen to the podcast, so they'll know straight away exactly what I'm on about. And they'll be listening to this, going, "Yes, yes, that's so true." But I used to be in a team that was, the best team I've. I've ever worked in my my entire life like or so far at least the best team I've ever worked in or joint best the other one was when I was a chef um, and we were just all mates but that aside from from a health and safety team point of view best team I've ever worked in and I think there was two key things one the line manager for all the kind of area manager business partners whatever you want to call them she, she knew us like not not knew our jobs like she knew us as people she knew my wife's name she knew the dog she knew you know that i played rugby she knew like she knew me scarily well like to the point that when i left the business um she knew that like 
I, I had, I'd, I'd stopped playing rugby and then somebody said, oh, what, what, what should we get him like to leave? And they would say, let's get him some rugby stuff. And she was like, oh no, he stopped playing rugby. And, and, and they were like, oh, I didn't know that. She knew that. I said, what about getting some beer? And she said, no, James, sometimes, sometimes he's like, he's either on fitness or I always say I'm on fitness or I'm on fatness. There's no in between. I'm either fully <laughs> fitness and I'm like, you know, I, I eat lettuce leaves all the time. Or I'm like, I don't want to do any exercise. I just want to eat chocolate and drink beer. There's no in between with me, right? And she knew he's in a fitness phase right now. So she got me vouchers. They, they all chipped in and, and got me vouchers for the cycling stuff. And I was just like, do you know what? That is amazing. That's how did you know? That? So there's one thing. Well, that was one of them. That was the one key component was that, that line manager. She knew us all so well. The other thing we did was at every team meeting, we did a check-in. Now, check-in was personal and and when i started the business she told me quite distinctly this is a personal check-in we want to know something about you how are you what you're doing what you're doing with your life you know how's your wife whatever so you know we went around the room and people were telling us you know my, my uh, you know somebody would be like my daughter's having her first child or you know i would be like sometimes it was really stupid stuff like i've just changed my dog's diet because he was really poorly you know they knew so much about me and and it was so good and it was the best team i ever worked with and we had a leadership change the head of safety changed right the first check-in that we had he sat on his phone the whole way through didn't even look up from his phone we already had a bit of a bad relationship anyway because of some other stuff he'd done but sat on his phone didn't look up whatsoever came around to him he, he told us all about him and we were just like well you're, you didn't listen to us you, you couldn't even get off your phone when, when we were doing our check-in. So why, why should we listen to you? The dynamic immediately changed, immediately changed. And, you know, I, well, I tell, I tell you now, you know, I never met the guy, never, the head of safety, never met him, but the head of safety before on my second day of the business, got a train down to Peterborough, which was the nearest office to me, come took me out for a coffee. And he's asking me all about me. You know, how you doing? What you do? We spoke about rugby because his son plays rugby and I play rugby. There are two outstanding leaders in that team. And that's what I think it is. I think it's leadership. You know, two outstanding leaders. And when it changed, that, that one line manager that we had, she stayed. She moved on now, but she stayed. And it, 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 the whole dynamic changed, but she was the only one that kept us together because she carried on managing like she always managed. She knew us. She, she, would, she looked after us, really. Because she cared about us. That's all it was. The other guy, the new head of safety, he didn't give a shit. He was transactional. He, I wouldn't even say he was transactional. I would say he was all about himself, but that aside. And, and it changed the whole dynamic of the team. And all of the existing members of that team have either left or are looking to leave. And, yeah. and all, all it took and was And this, this is the cost to, um, to not prioritizing, uh, you know, organizational health and, and meaningful employment, the, you will lose your best people mm. always because there's, there's, there are going to be people who can't work in such an environment. And they're often the ones who are the most, uh, the, the ones you rely on and this kind of thing. Because if people have already um, the former uh, union steward at uh, where I used to work called it checked out. Mm. You know, people are checked out. They come to work. They do. Well, actually, this is called uh, 
functional stupidity. I, I can give you a definition here. So functional stupidity, as defined by Alveson and Spicer, is the inclination to reduce one's scope of thinking and focus only on the narrow technical aspects of the job. You do the job correctly, but without reflecting on purpose or wider context. And then when things go wrongly, you tend to engage in self-stupefaction, where you tell yourself stories to align with your surroundings, and you edit your own experience to match the optimistic vision that you hear around you. By mentally erasing negative experiences, employees are able to maintain an affirmative worldview. And this becomes very dangerous, mm. uh, you know, it, it, depending on, um, well, it becomes dangerous in, in, in all situations because it's going to decrease morale and it's going to decrease people's um, interest in their work, their, their sense of value and purpose and all the rest of it. Um, but which can have risk consequences depending on the, you know, if it's, a, if high, if it's high risk work. But, you know, you can get into, you know, when people, I'll just give you another quote from functional stupidity. When people start ignoring contradictions, avoid careful reasoning, and fail to ask probing questions, they also start to overlook problems. That way you may rest easy in the short term, but in the long term, problems will build up. And as this happens, the gulf between rhetoric and reality becomes hard to deny. This triggers a profound sense of disappointment and disengagement on the part of employees. Wow. But, you know, smart people quickly learn when it pays not to think more broadly. When this happens, they start to engage in stupidity self-management. Doubts are cast aside. Critique is culled by the internal censor. Complexity, contradictions, and ambiguity are denied, and negative aspects of corporate life are airbrushed out. A sense of faith and optimism is restored. People carefully nurture a sense that things are normal and acceptable. They avoid asking serious questions. Eventually, individuals start to instinctively sidestep situations where doubts might be kindled, criticisms offered, or justifications called for. Susan David talks about bottling emotions and having, I, she actually, and I, and I made sure I found um, this, uh, this clip that she has on the internet when I made my functional stupidity talk, because she says, you know, saying things like, well, I hate my job, but at least I have a job as being bottling, as being not in touch with your emotions. Mm. Emotions, though, are part of what it is to be human. They are part of who we are. And we have gotten, in, we have, uh, gotten into this uh, understanding that emotions are binary, that they're either good or bad. Mm. And, you know, this, this really bothers Susan David. She has a TED Talk as well. And, you know, she says, well, how did we get here? Emotions are a spectrum. There are all, and they are part of us. And we were talking about values earlier, and it's highly unlikely that a whole lot of people have actually sat down and figured out what their values truly are. Mm. Emotions are a wonderful guide to figure out what your values are. 
as an individual. So if things really um, get your back up, things are, you know, are getting you angry and you're going to react, that's, that is a really excellent clue as to what is important to you. Mm. You know, what, what is it that's driving you to, to act that way? That, what, if you start figuring these things out, that's the easy, that, you know, those ones are easy to find out. You can also, you know, think about, um, you know, if you had infinite, uh, you had no barriers, you know, infinite time and resources and relationships and all, you know, everything was perfect. What would you do? What would you mm. spend your time doing? What would you do? Mm. And like, that would be another way that you can start to figure out what your values are. It's hard. It's not, this isn't easy work, but once you figure those out, and in fact, um, figuring them out, there are four types of values that Lencioni talks about. The core values, the core values are really who you are. And this can be done organizationally too. It's who you are. Mm. So these you can find out by, if you break these, you are selling your soul. Mm. You're not even who you are anymore. Mm. So these are few in number, like two to three kind of thing he says. Like really core, like this, this is me. And if, if you know, I, I can't even not identify with these kinds of things. Those are the core. Yeah. There's another realm that he calls permission to play, but I don't like that terminology. I, I have an article coming out. I'll put it on LinkedIn when it, when it's published, called accepted values. So these are kind of like your bare minimum to be able to engage in in the groups in which you're engaging. You know, these are everybody's going to have these. You know. So these are not distinguishing at all. The core values should be distinguishing. You, do, you know, it doesn't matter that other people don't share these. They shouldn't really, unless they are very similar to you. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the accepted values are less distinguishing, but they are the, the minimum game rules in order to be able to engage in whatever group you're engaging in. And they can be more numerous, five to seven kind of thing. Mm. So those are the accepted values. So those are the ones that really you can start using to guide your decisions. However, there are two other categories, maybe another category as well that you could start using, the aspirational values. Mm. And those are the ones that you wish you had, but you don't already. You know, I wish that I, you know, um, were more generous or I wish that I, you know, whatever it is. you, you can't, can, they, those certain, those, those values certainly shouldn't end up in your core list. So you have to be, you know, if it's an accepted value, it's what you're actually doing. It's, it's, it's how you're actually acting. If, it, if it's not, then it could be aspirational. You want to try to move yourself to get there, but it's not there now. So you have to, but, but it's worth making sure that it's, it's more of a, something you're working towards than it is um, a, uh, is something that is Mm -hmm. the worst one is an accidental value. So an accidental value can is, is where you adopt a value that isn't you, but 
you're you're adopting it through something like social contagion or something like that mm. where it's keeping up with the joneses kind of mm. stuff it's not really reflective of you at all but it's just the way we do things here and that's dangerous those ones you have to be on a lookout for all the time because it's easy to start um, just through osmosis, getting these types of accidental values into the way that you are living your life, even though they're not representative of who you are. They're not representative of the ideals of your, your social groupings, but they just kind of got in there. Mm. So you have to be on the watch for these. This is why you have to review your values constantly. Another thing that's interesting is that a lot of people confuse values and goals. Goals get into these time, they, they um, align very nicely to that SMART acronym, you know, the uh, yeah. specific measured, if, I can't remember what it is. What's SMART? Specific, specific measurable, attainable, attainable. and time-based. That's it, yeah. Sorry. So if you are looking at some part of your, your life and it corresponds to one of those attributes in the smart you're likely looking at a goal mm. a value just is and there 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 aren't really good or bad values you know they just are mm. and so you you need to ensure that you don't confuse them with goals and you need to be revisiting these things on a continual basis because it is possible that these accidental values can start bleeding into the way that you're living your life. And, and then you have to well, wait a minute. I don't actually believe in that. Why am I doing this? You know, I feel like goal goals would be more tangible, like more physical, like a, like a goal would be, I don't know, to have a doctorate, like have a big job. I don't know, but a value is, is, it's more kind of physiolog. Uh, I can't. Feel, I can never say the word, but like more emotional, more, 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 more like. Yeah, it's not tangible, is it? It's more like a value no. to me. Is is like I don't know. This stuff's really hard. Like, like it is hard. It, it's it, not. It's but it, but it's so worth doing though. Yeah. Because once you undergo this kind of thing, so I'll just uh, I'll just look up um, some list of values that I have in these articles, there are tons and tons of lists and values, right? Tons and tons of them. So, I'll just you know, trying to think of mine, like above and beyond acceptance, accessibility, accomplishment, accountability, accurate. I'm in the A's right now, but like, <laughs> um, you know, um, directness, uh, discipline, discovery, discretion, diversity, equality, exceeding expectations, exploration you know extrovert fairness faithfulness all of this kind of stuff they're not they're not good or bad they're just mm. they're just are right mm. so and you can't that one problem was that when jim collins had published his good to great uh, book and said that values were important you go into uh, Pat Lencioni talked about when his kids were being born and um, and going into an elevator in the hospital and seeing the values, values of our hospital. And there must have been like 
15 of them or, or maybe more like, mm. you know, 23 <laughs> of them yeah. in the elevator. That's, that's getting way too many. You, you need to start figuring out what are core that are you that are not everybody else. Southwest airlines, for example, their purpose, the reason why they, they became an airline was in order to democratize air travel. They realized when they were founded, which was a long time ago, um, air travel was a rich man's game. Mm -hmm. And they really wanted to enable, you know, small, small businesses to visit their clients. They wanted to enable family reunions or, you know, um, people to go to uh, special events and things like this. So they truly have kept to that mantra of democratizing air travel in all decisions that they make. For example, they don't fly internationally. They are a domestic carrier, even though you can start to get a lot more money by, you know, going outside mm -hmm. of, you know, no, they know who they are and they make that decision. After 9-11, all airlines started charging for bags, which is when, you know, everybody started getting one bag and putting them in the container above their seat. Yeah. All the suitcase manufacturers started to measure all of those containers and selling all the, the suitcases that size. Um, Southwest Airlines chose not to charge for bags. They could have. They could have. Everybody else was doing it. It would have been an accidental kind of thing, like just keeping up with the Joneses. But they knew who they were. They knew who their market was. They knew why they were, why they exist. And they chose not to do that. That's powerful. It's, it's not just this thing that you put on the wall. These are operational decision-making guides that help you through things, you know? We interrupt this broadcast to bring you a shameless sponsorship clip. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt your awesome podcast. I, I, I'm sure you were getting well into it, but I want to talk to you about loan working. It's a challenge for all of us because nine times out of ten, nothing goes wrong. But what I think we, we lack in, in loan working is having a little bit of a capacity to fail safe. If something goes wrong, you know, who knows that that worker is in trouble? Does anyone know? How do they know where you are? And is there any help coming? How do we communicate? Sometimes we can say, well, we'll just text them. And do you know what? Texting them is probably a good idea. Having that kind of check-in for some things like just popping into a, an office that we don't really use at the moment because we're all locked down or, or whatever, is probably a good solution. But if something did go wrong, a text is a really hard thing to do. And that's why I partnered up with this company called SafePoint to get you guys some discount because I just love what they're doing. They're innovative, it's easy to use, they've got some extra kind of hardware pieces that you can buy and complement it. And they've got some really cool stuff in there, like this three word thing, where basically the app creates these three words and those three words 
when you communicate them to the emergency services, tells them exactly where you are, like pinpoint. So it's not like you're having to go, oh, I don't know, I was out of my bike and I took a left off of, um, oh, I don't know the road. You know, that don't, that's not gonna help anyone, is it? And that's why this three word thing is so cool. So it'll be like sheep, lamb, cow. And you'll be like, I've got the three word thing. And they'll be like, okay, cool, what are the three words? Sheep, lamb, cow, boom, we know where you are. We'll be there in 10 minutes. It's like, that is cool, man. And that's why we partnered up with them. So go check them out at SafePoint app dot com forward slash rebranding safety use the code rebranding safety if you sign up for the monthly plan you get 10% off your first month but if you sign up to the annual plan you can get 10% off the entire year of the entire first year man just from typing rebranding safety and obviously we get a little bit of a kickback so you can support your favorite podcast at the same time as nailing the risk of loan working i'll let you get back into the podcast I think <laughs> I love when you say it's not just something that goes on your wall. I think we talk about values all the time. I think businesses talk about values all the time. These are our values, but like it, it it's not, it, there's a couple of interesting things I want to say here. What we, one is in a podcast we, we just put out a few weeks ago, we had a gentleman uh, who, who runs a consultancy business and, uh, and another businesses, which helps people build businesses essentially. And he said, um, one of his values is uh, one of their, their business values, as, as they called it, was um, we don't work with dickheads. And I was like, I love that because there's something that me and my wife have always said, because we, we used to work, me and my wife uh, met in, um, in hospitality. She was front of house. I was back of house. There you go. You know, that's a, that's a romance film if you ever need one. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, when, when you work in hospitality, you you see the 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 art end of society i call it like the, you see nasty people they treat you like absolute mugs and um we always said you know i i want to own my own business one day and i always said you know what i will never i would never let anyone talk to my staff the way that we were spoken to in the pub never like you know, if somebody rings you up and they're like, right, Tanya, you didn't do this. You didn't do that. And I would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Tanya, if that ever happens again, you're coming to me and you're telling me straight away and, and we'll deal with it. And FYI, that customer gone. It's off our contracts. We don't work with dickheads. And, and anyway, this, this, this guy, he, um, one of his, one of his uh, team, one of his consultants came into his office and he said, look, Simon, I've, uh, I've, I've worked with this customer for a while. I've really, I've really struggled with this, blah, blah, blah. This is happening. He's canceled the last three meetings I've had really last minute to the point where I'm on site and then I get there and he's canceled. So I'm driving for two hours, getting to site and he canceled. Like it's a, not, it's a nightmare. Um, I don't think we should work with him. And uh, Simon was like, oh, I don't know. He brings a lot of money in. You know, it's a big contract, quite a big contract. And his employee just pointed at the wall where, it, where they painted on the wall that said, we don't work with dickheads. And he went, Simon, <laughs> we don't work with dickheads. And this was the bit. This was the bit where Simon went, fair play. That's it. Wrote the customer a letter saying, sorry, based on your current, current performance and attitude and the way you're treating my staff, we've decided to pull the contract. They pulled the contract. That's a value. Whether, yes. whether, whether, whether you could describe that a better way or whether you could make it a bit more, I don't care. But the, the thing to me is that you wrote on the wall, but then you were held to account by your employee yes. and you did it. That's yes. the key. That for me, that's the key. 
Well, I hate so it they're not put it on the wall yes. and they don't follow it. There's nothing worse. That's right. They're not just empty things. You actually run your organization by these things, mm. but by refusing customers, they, like by not getting extra money. That's when you know that it's a core value, right? If you can start foregoing contracts that would bring you money, that that's how you know that this is this is really who you are because you're yeah. willing to take loss for it you're willing to be able to there's a willingness to pay for this it's kind of like That's, simon simon cynic's works in like kind of find your why this all kind of yes. reminds me quite a lot of that and i think i'm reading that that book start with why now but i've watched i've watched his ted talks i've watched loads of his interviews and i really like the way he talks about stuff and leadership and stuff like that. but i think when, when we started this podcast, you know, that was big for me. You know, wh why are we doing this? Wh why, why are we doing this podcast? And, um, and for me, it was, it was a, there's a potential to health and safety that we can do more. But ultimately, like, we can create so many better workplaces. And, and we could, but people just don't know about this stuff. We just need to talk more about it. But for me, why do I do this podcast? Really? Why? Because I feel like I'm doing my thing to, to help create a better workplace for when my baby, my child, grows up and goes to work. I can probably rest assured it's maybe a little bit safer. And if I can do my little bit to that, that that's why. And, and, and I think that, if you've got that, what, what that why, it makes such a massive difference. And I remember Absolutely. the first time we got approached by uh, a sponsorship and they wanted to they wanted to do like this little affiliate partnership and said anyway and they wanted to show me this software and um the software was extremely compliant so it was very was it was an amazing piece of software don't get me wrong it was amazing but it was built around the emphasis of compliance and tick boxes and you know you upload your rams here and then that's it and and i remember the one line that put me off he was like you know in theory customers don't even need to look at it as long as it says con contractor compliant that's it they can come on site and i was like sorry mate it's not for me not for me because i knew that's not how i view safety and i knew right. that for me that would not be good enough if my kid was working on that construction site. And, and it's interesting that uh, a, a friend of mine who I, I used to work with, he works with, he's a fire officer, and he uses the same, a, a very similar way of looking at things. And he always asks himself when he's going into a building, would I let my kids stay here? That's all he asks. Will, will my kids stay here? If the answer is no, he's, he's going he's gonna to work with you. To, to get it fixed well he's an enforcing officer so he's probably going to enforce on you but that aside and he um i remember him having a debate with this he was telling me the story where he had this debate with this guy about essentially there's this i can't remember the phrase but it says the distance of a cooker to an exit should be of reasonable distance or something like that it's a very gray phrase and this this architect or whoever was saying it's of reasonable distance. It's of reasonable distance, and then uh, he just went, "That's fair enough." Have you got kids? He went, "Yeah, yeah, of course, I yeah, I've got kids." He said, "Would you let your kids stay here?" And the architect had, didn't say a word, had nothing to say. He went, "In that case, you need to move the cooker." And he, when you yeah. know that, I mean, it, it doesn't matter. You can, it, you know, any argument that you get, it just doesn't matter. You just move on. It would be lovely if we could i mean I, I agree with you i think that's a it's a powerful way to be able to um uh to reinforce you know would you when you take something the reason why that works 
is because in our society, people value their children, mm. right? There might not have, there might have been times in our, in our civilization's history where that wasn't so strong as it is today. And it, but it works now because we, we attribute a ton of importance to our children. Mm. But it would be lovely if we could actually care about the people in the workplace in a way that had that level of, yeah. of you know, attribution of value. Like we can care for them equally, but they, they, they don't have to be our child to, for they us don't to have actually to be care your child. about them. That's we can, right. We can equally care about them in a way. Yeah. One company had uh, years ago introduced um, treating other workers like your brother or sister in order to be able to introduce a surrogate so that people would take the thing seriously. Mm. But I, it's well-intentioned and, and I can see that. But I think it would be even better if we can have the capacity to enable relationships to, um, to supplant that need for a surrogate. Because you would, you would, uh, you would do what you'd be doing in, because you honestly don't want your coworker to get hurt. Mm. You know, there's a, there's a, a genuine interest in your coworkers because you know who they are and you have an interest in, in, in not harming them. Yeah. Because of a real relationship as opposed to a yes. really fake relationship, like pretending yes. you're my sister when you're not and actually right. just getting to know, I, I don't want to protect Tanya because I, I've, I, I treat everyone like they're my sister. I want to protect Tanya because I know who Tanya is. So I want that's to right. create a nice workplace because I know. And who of course Tanya there's, is. there's another huge, huge benefit to that. And this is the hardest part. The hardest part of this whole thing, um, in, in Pat Lencioni's model of, tr of, of um, teamwork, you start with vulnerability-based trust. So this is how you get the relationships set up. And the vulnerability is using vocabulary like, I don't know, mm. um, I made a mistake, you're better at this than I am these kinds of words you know this kind of stuff it's that's the vulnerability that we're talking about there's a whole lot in there but i want to get to another place so the next one he calls conflict i'd like to try to rename that this is where you are for real weighing in on decisions and not being subject to groupthink and not saying, oh, well, if, if, you know, she's more important than me and, and she knows what she's talking about, I'll just go along with that. Mm. Like, really being able to engage in things uh, with the full onset of psychological safety. Psychological safety has uh, various levels to it that you won't be able to get to this level unless you go through these other levels. But anyway, um, mm. you know, having the ability to weigh in because... I truly believe that if people are able to voice their opinions on a decision and are given a disposition of those opinions with all of the values and everything that we've talked about, understanding why 
we can't do this at this time or in that way or whatever, people will be okay with that. Mm -hmm. But they have to be heard. You need to be able to be heard in order to, to have that whole interaction take place. Mm. So that's absolutely critical. I, and I then, go sorry, go ahead. No, you go. You go. Uh, so the next level is commitment. You won't be able to commit unless you have the trust, unless you have the, the conflict. Mm. And the commitment is that you're, you're all, you're all, steering in the boat in the same direction you're all aligned in where we're going mm. commitment and and that's the third level the fourth level is the hardest one and that's where the accountability uh, th that's where we uh, we're talking about with the relationships if you actually have a relationship with your co-workers and you were talking about um berate you know having somebody berate other people is intolerable to you mm -hmm. so if if you see somebody berating some uh, someone else that you would be able to have the conversation with that person and say you know i actually had observed that you had treated you know somebody else in a way that we just don't want to see here mm. that is incredibly difficult a conversation for most people to have and unless you have a relationship with people where you have the trust and all of this you won't have it because you know it's it's, it's too hard it because the reason why it's hard is because it often comes off as negative as being um uh, judgmental and accusatory and all this kind of thing but if there is a relationship underlying the conversation it can come from a place of genuine interest in helping the person get better because mm -hmm. they might not be naturally dispositioned to not berate people maybe their upbringing and all this kind of thing had you know they've seen berating all the time and maybe this is a, a habit that they have to try to adopt and they need help in doing that and the help that they can benefit from is this type of conversation but in order to be able to hold it it needs to be from a genuine place of of wanting to assist the person to get better and that's hard if there's no relationship behind it mm. and that that just for me that all i'm thinking the whole way through is 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 is, is the, the foundation of that is the value isn't it like, yes like if you if you were the bit so i always use this example of, of like startups if you got like a startup business right it's like it's, it's just chaotic like it's you know working all hours of this and people probably you know let's say you're let's say you're an employee of the startup right you're an employee of a startup and you're you're one of the first of five for example right all of those people are probably not going to be paid uber amounts of money and they're in a, in a startup and i think somebody i think i saw a couple of while ago that like something's crazy like 98 percent or something of, of startups in the uk fail 
something yeah. cra- some crazy statistic like that. So it's like, what the hell? So only three percent or hang on, my math is terrible. Eight, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, they only survive. It's like, what the hell? So you're in this like unbelievably unstable role, right? But a couple of things happen in a startup is nine times out of ten, you as the employee are so invested in this company succeeding, right? And and to be honest, on a startup, you're probably there because you really believe in what they're doing as well. Like, you know, and, and that they're probably going to employ someone that in, believes in what they're doing as well, because that's the nature of a startup. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I'm creating this environmentally changing product. Um, every, you know, you're looking for people who, who are passionate about environment. They're passionate about stuff like that. I mean, people get so invested that, they, they slog it that they work hard that they that you know they become this like beautiful culture and what i don't what i think people fail to understand is is that they're like well, we do all this work we're going to make some value but it's hard work and you know why should we do that we, we're already making you know we've already got like a 50 percent profit margin we're already making millions every year and it's like yeah that's really good you're making millions every year on a transactional based process but just imagine just imagine if all the millions of those people that work for you, if they actually wanted to be here, how much harder they would work for you. Like if they loved working for you, if they loved working for the managers that you employ, how much harder would they work? You know, and we, we see it all the time, right? In, in, in sport, some of the best teams are the people that believe in that team they believe in the coach they believe in that club they stay there forever i interviewed um will fraser from saracen's rugby team and and he was saying you know one of the biggest things was we we just loved the club we 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 were invested in that and um, um, what the other things he said that the managers of that club they knew the families they looked after the families the families were an integral part of that team you know, all of us on the outside, all we see is, it's a big salary, you know, there was a big salary scandal, and it turns out they're all being paid too much, and they broke the, they broke the kind of rules, but, but that, and that's a shame, because that's what, everyone will tar them with the bush, like, every, oh, no wonder they, they will work with us, oh, they're all getting paid so much, but it's all the other stuff that we didn't see, you know, everyone saw the big salary, everyone saw the big holidays that they all had, and, no one really saw you know how well they looked after their family you know if you interview these players back before the salary scandal the way they talked about their club it wasn't just a club it wasn't just a job they loved it yeah they loved the club they wanted to be there like like these guys would bleed for that club some of them literally did i mean rugby is a a nasty sport but it's like it, it it just Imagine if we did that in business. People Absolutely. just don't like. There's they, a uh, like salary is what people tip, typically um, default to when they talk about the value of work. Mm. We, you had talked about, you know, absolutely, you need to live, but there's diminishing returns to salary. Yeah. You, it's well evidenced that performance um, at under under high risk situations such as Christmas bonuses kind of thing, dependent on a, a certain outcome, uh, performance suffers. Like there's all sorts of evidence to show this. So um, it's not as though um, more money is what motivates most people. There's uh, 
a huge amount of this stuff that we've been talking about that people value so much more than getting a pay raise. Mm. There's, um, you know, there, I, I can remember there, uh, the, um, I'm trying to remember her name, Susan, uh, I could look her up. Um, but she has a, a company called for a uh, frog forever recognize others greatness. And, um, yes. And so she has talked about having, um, contracts with, in, uh, nurses, Sarah McVannell, that's her name. Um, uh, in, in hospitals because nurse managers don't necessarily have a very good reputation in a lot of, in a lot of hospital settings. And so she had gotten the nurse manager to hand write thank you cards to her nurses. And that act brought so much more than, you know, having, uh, you know, increased all the, you know, negotiating with the government to increase more salary and all this kind of thing. Actually investing in the relationships gives you so much more than the, than money ever could. Mm, definitely. I, 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 I will, a great example is that I used to work for a company that was the, the best player that it was known in, in the town as the best kind of paying factory in that town. So if you got a job there, spot on. Um, so a machine operator there would, would notoriously for the town be better paid than most. A lot of people had been there for an extremely long time for, for that obvious reason. But what did they, that when they moaned about their job, they didn't moan about the salary. They never moaned about the salary, but they all moaned about their job. And some of the key things they moaned about is we, we used to see the plants that we had a plant, a UK plant director or whatever. And he was based on site. We had two sites just up and down the road from each other. And, um, and they said, he used to be in here all the time. He would know us. He would walk down the machines and be like, you know, oh, how, how's the wife? How, you know, how's the husband? You know, how the kids, whatever. They said every, every, every year we would get a hamper that had our name on it. It had, you know, white wine, red wine, um, chicken and beef. He said it got to the point that actually it, they went to the point, sorry, that if you didn't like red wine or white wine, they would have, they would not put it in. You would just get an extra bottle of the one that you liked. Like they, they, that's what they moaned about. None of them moaned about the salary. None of them moaned about the work. They moaned because they lost all that stuff. We didn't get that stuff anymore. And it's like, I remember as a young, you know, re- that was my first safety job. And I remember thinking, wow, that, that tells you a lot. You don't really need yes. to know much else. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying that business should just start all these gimmicky stuff like pizza Fridays and stuff like that. It's more than that. It's the, it's, yes. it, it's not the hamper. It's the fact that don't put white wine in James's hamper because he got so drunk in Paris that one time he can't drink white wine anymore. <laughs> like <laughs> that, that's, that's the difference. If James only drinks red right. wine. Don't give him white wine. That's the thing that makes a difference. Because you actually know your employees. Exactly. Exactly. I think for, for like a, a, a massive. So let, me, business... let me just tell you one more thing. So the, the Pat Lancioni's um, recipe for employee engagement know your employees, ensure that they know why their job is valuable, mm, you know, I like that. Yeah. because if, if people believe that they're working for nothing, 
there was a UK study actually that had said that an, an astonishing number of people in the UK believe that what they do has zero value whatsoever. Wow. It was shocking to read. But um, um, they have to believe that their, their job has a value and managers have a key role in that. Mm. And it was uh, interesting, this one story that he likes to tell, he was giving a talk and there was some cynical guy who um, made, he was in maintenance at a hospital and he, um, he was in charge of guys who did things like um, maintain the ice machines at the hospital. Mm. And he was like, oh, for Christ's sake, like, do I, I have to tell the guys that, you know, maintaining the ice machine is value, like it has purpose and all, like, honest to God. And you could tell that he was not into this at all. Mm. And there was a woman in the audience that Pat Lencioni, you know, is forever grateful for, who said that she gave birth in that hospital a couple of years back and she was so grateful for the ice chips that she was able to use while she was wow. uh, delivering her baby that you know absolutely there's a <laughs> there's a value to all jobs but the last thing he talks about is not getting not knowing how you're doing mm. not having a way to assess your progress so on this one there's, I mean, that could be a whole other discussion, but this does not have to be up to the manager. This could be up to the employee, just so as long as they're given some guidance. He talked about working at a fast food drive through I mean, how, how, uh, what, what would you do to measure that? So it has to be something that you have control over, right? So if you're starting to assess like the number of cars that come through, like, do you have control over that? Not at all. You have to have some kind of control over it. So uh, one uh, institution he talked about was um, drive-through operators around Christmas time, counting the number of customers they could get to say Merry Christmas back to them. Mm. So then it was almost like a competition and they would keep score of, you know, and this became, you know, very motivating for them to be able to, you know, get mm. customers to say Merry Christmas, because not all customers are going to do that, right? Mm. So it became, um, it became something that the employees themselves had some um, agency over in order to be able to get a sense of how they're doing. So it doesn't have to be complicated. It can, it can be quite simple. And, you know, you can, it could be multidimensional too. Like it doesn't have to be just a performance review by a manager. Mm, I love that. I think it's so important to, it, it's interesting. I, I, I spoke about this from a safety point of view, but you know, it, it is, it's funny because I, I use my, my dog, right. As an example, many, many times you know, when I'm training people and stuff like that. And 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 one of the ways when I'm training, I use my dog as a as a kind of an icebreaker in a way, and uh, I put a picture of my dog up on the screen, and I'll say, "Everyone meet Mister. His name's Mister. Mister McPherson. So everyone meet Mister. This is my dog." And uh, and then I get out this like box of chocolate celebrations or packet of crisps. I've used pom bears before, whatever, right? Whatever's on deal, basically. And I put the tin on the top, and and I'll 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 get a big sticker and I'll write dog treats on it right just as a joke right 
And I say, essentially, I'm going to treat you like I treat my, my dog, right, in this training course. And I'll tell you why. Don't take that to offense because I'll tell you why. With my dog, I work on positive reinforcement. So when he gets something right, he gets a treat. When he gets something wrong, nothing happens. We just leave him. And that's it. And eventually he learns, I'll do more of that stuff because I get more treats. You know, do, and everyone, you know, my dog is quite well behaved. He does, he pushes his luck sometimes on some stuff. You know, he's a bit, bit too intelligent for his own light sometimes. But, and, it, and I always think, but when do we do that in, in daily work? Like, you know, we could talk about it from a safety point of view, but, but from a work-based point of view, it's, it's like good. I remember somebody telling me a long time ago, good work is expected of you, James. And I'm just like, now my personality, I, I, I quite, I, I need to be told I'm doing a good job. But like, you know what? Most people do. Most people want to be told you're doing a good job. What's the harm of saying at the end of the day, be like, Tanya, she's, she's doing great today. Thank you very much. You know, and, and mean it, you know, it's something different or yet it doesn't, not a generic kind of crappy Tanya, every day you're walking out the door and there's just a boss there that just says, Tanya, you've done great today. And then right, James yeah. is behind you in the queue and then he goes, James, you've done great today. That's rubbish. Right. But like knowing something, you know what I mean? Like at the end of the week saying, oh, Tanya, do you know what? That report you sent me, it's absolutely spot on. Thank you very, very much. You know, and getting some real good feedback about it and positive reinforcement. I think that makes a massive, massive difference because the next time he says, you know, my boss says, I need that report. I'm going to do it again to that same standard because I remember that positive feeling I got, that that endorphins that was released in my body when he said, James, that was such a great report you did. I want to feel that again. I want to do it again. And, and I just think, oh, why can't people just bloody get this? It, it's really, that that's the thing that annoys me. Why don't we get it? Why, why don't we? We could talk about this all day, I think, Tanya, especially I could anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. And I think there is something interesting we haven't touched on today, which um, I'm conscious we've been talking for a while, but there is something that, that you said when we spoke before, which I think was was really insightful. And I didn't really, fit, hit, I've never thought of it before, but it was about where can we go in the workplace to, to, to see if people, if we, you know, people want to work, if people want to be here. And, and I thought your answer was like just phenomenal. So please enlighten us all on this, on my answer. It, it's not me. It's Pat Lencioni. Oh, is but, it? Oh, I didn't um, know that. I thought it was yours. I was gonna, <laughs> I was gonna copyright it for you and everything. <laughs> <laughs> so he talked about the best leading indicator being how people come to work. Like, watch them open the door. You know, like have understand you know if they are excited to be there if they have um you know a joy in their step if they're this isn't to say mind you that people if you institute this organizational health kind of stuff you're still allowed to have bad days right you're still mm -hmm. allowed to be human you're still allowed to have you know these these days when um things aren't as you want them to be and all this kind of thing mm -hmm. but on balance you're going to derive more purpose you're going to have more energy um from going to work than than it be draining you you know it's going to be something that you feel as though you are contributing to that you have an ability to make a difference 
the agency that uh, people have, the innate desire to make a difference is, is huge. Mm. And if workplaces could tap into that, mm. I mean, it would be phenomenal. Because if people honestly believe that they are being listened to and that their contribution is being valued, they, the potential is almost um, limitless. You know, mm. people will really go the distance mm. in order to be able to, um, as you said, feel good about what they're doing. Mm. You know, I, I, it's... I, I, and it's it's in those you know as we come out the now we come at the tail end of 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 the of the lockdowns and things like that and we move into like this this newer kind of world but it's like you can you 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 would you would be more resilient as a business in in these kinds of really challenging times you know let, let, uh, especially in the uk we're, we're going to hit a recession off the back of this lockdown definitely and i wouldn't be surprised if most of the world does uh, yeah. as well but it, so so we've got more challenging times ahead of us even more challenging times ahead but how you've acted and treated your staff through that lockdown could could actually be the decider as whether you survive the next challenge which will be the recession you know in, uh, but people look at it from a fiscal point of view being like oh you know we need this but it's like and i'll never forget the story and i can't remember who who or what company or where i heard it but it was about i might have heard it of simon Sinek. i can't remember but it was about uh, a company that are going into you know some real financial trouble and the ceo basically went to the boardroom and said what what are we going to do about this and everyone was like we're going to have to make redundancies he said i really don't want to make redundancies and, and the finance person was like it's redundancies or bust you know we, we're going to need to and he was like no i don't accept that you need to come come to me with something else and they never did and he went away and, and was trying to think of something and he came back and he said i want you to do some calculations for me how much of a paycheck would everybody have to take or how how can we do something if you spread the 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 the, the damage across the whole business um he come back and he didn't like the answer and then the the solution actually was they needed everyone to take i think it was 11 days or 11 weeks it might have been 11 weeks um annual leave unpaid leave sorry not annual leave unpaid leave throughout the year they can take it whenever they, they don't have to take it in, a, in one bulk they could take one day here one day there but they have to take it otherwise this company's going bust and i'm going to take it all of us are going to take unpaid leave for for 11 weeks or 11 days or whatever it was but he didn't just say that's the decision he put the options on 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 like a survey or something i can't remember he said he asked everybody here's the options 11 weeks unpaid leave pay cut for everybody redundancies or bust the entire business chose the unpaid leave the entire business and the business survived apparently according to that story i can tell you what that business was i can't even tell you who it was or, or when i heard it but i just remember it's, it's brilliant and and part of this is because um as you you know people want to feel as though they are making a difference that people are contributing in some way and i mean uh staying at home during a lockdown doesn't feel as though you're contributing that much but if it can be uh if organizations think about it in exactly the way that you put it 
Pat Lencioni did the same same thing. Like he had, um, he looked at at it only in money, mind you. But he had, you know, said, well, a couple. He said a couple of things. Number one, um, you're either going to come out of this um, stronger and better, or weaker and broken. You know, like that. There's he doesn't see a whole lot of middle ground in this. Leaders are going to be remembered for what they do during this time. Mm. not when you know times are good and it's going to be when this this whole uh you know pandemic hit and everything that's what people are going to remember how you did what you said that kind of thing so it's super critical for leaders to be aware of that and what, what you just said that um he he was uh advocating that um companies in trouble um take a pay cut across the the board like at the at the high level the c-suite stuff yeah and then offer the option um to everybody else so that everybody else in the business explaining that this can prevent furloughing people this can prevent laying off people and all all the rest of this kind of thing that survive as a company if we can get more money in our in our cash reserves by not paying it out as much mm. and he he projected that a lot of people well you can't force it on people because you don't know everybody's circumstances and you know you, you yeah. know it'd have to be a voluntary thing but that because of this innate need to contribute this innate need to help others that we all have that likely a lot more people will take businesses up on this than we realize. Mm. So it's, it's fascinating. Uh, like we, we in the UK now, in the in I'm a, I'm a huge rugby fan, and um, it, rugby clubs are going through exactly that now. You know, they're all having to take cuts. They've just they've the biggest part of the season. Essentially, we stopped mid Six Nations, which was just like the. the debatable i don't think it is debatable but debatably the best championship in the in the in the kind of world when it comes to rugby you know everyone loves the six nations we stopped in the middle of that then we've come off the back of that everyone is like hyped up for rugby and they just go and then the summer summer comes along and you start to watch more rugby etc etc um, we stopped we stopped midway through that and it's like you know rugby clubs have lost so much money and they're all having to cut salaries across the board pretty much you know players who are paid unbelievable amounts of money nowhere near as much as football but still you know a lot of money and my team Northampton Saints um I've, I've all taken a cut and and the, the the reports and interviews from players is just like it's humbling. It's beautiful to read. If I'm honest, like some of the world's biggest players that could leave and, and go to France and get, you know, a huge salary. France pay much more than we do over here. And, and they're all sitting there just going, nah, well, I want to play for the club. And I think we'll come out of this better. And we just need to take this cut now and, um, and we'll be better. And, and we've, we've, I think we've, we've had a lot of people leave the club, but it doesn't look like we've had people leave the club because of that salary cut. You know, right. people, are, it seems are staying. Whereas our direct competition, uh, Leicester Tigers, they've had players leave because of that. I think there's a lot more context to these decisions, bear in mind. But the, the reports we're reading are, it's because of the salary cuts. And I'm like, do you know what? I'm more, I'm more 
I, I, I'm more confident about my team coming back stronger out of this because the people are choosing to stay and they're choosing to take the cut. Not Nothing to do with losing the best players or, or not. It's not because our good players are staying and their good players are leaving. It's more because of how we're reacting to that. That's, that, that's yeah. the key for me, I think. The other thing uh, that is interesting about professional sports, because they, this is going to be, uh, we're talking about measurement there. This is going to be um, easy to see. Uh, you know, basketball is a big deal in the States and Pat mm -hmm. Lencioni is American. So he talked about the uh, National Basketball Association, the NBA, starting up sometime shortly. He thinks he is expecting to see the best free throws ever in the history of the NBA. Because these players have been, you know, sequestered like all of us. They all have home gyms. They should have been working out every day <laughs> as though they were playing, mm. as though this was going to, as though things were going to open up, even in the, you know, with things raging as they are in the States. He thinks that the best players out there are investing as much as they possibly can mm. into their, their physical fitness so that when that court opens, they're going to be at the prime that they've ever been because yeah. they, have, they have taken the time to do that during this, uh, during this uh, un, you know, unplanned pause. Mm. I think that's true. Some of the pictures coming out of the training for my squad, and I'm just like, Jesus, look at the size of them. Like they were big before, but God, uh, there was a, there was a, they put a, just a, a, a slight joke to the side, but like they put a picture up of one of the one of our newer players that joined just before the lockdown, and uh, God, the size of his biceps. I wrote I wrote on the post being like, I hope my wife doesn't see this post. Jesus Christ! <laughs> I, like, I kind of fell in love with him. Uh, anyway, we we kind of we've been talking for a long time, Tanya, but I'm I'm curious to think. I I feel like if things for people to kind of take away from this and uh, I'll be interested to see what you think, but I feel like the one thing that people should just take away from this is, is get to know your people, talk to your people, have a little bit of more kind of empathy and respect, but just talk to people, get to know them. I feel like that's the big takeaway from this. If you're a manager or even if you're just a colleague, a safety professional, just talk to people say, you know, say, how are you? And, and actually want to listen to the answer, not follow up with, have you done that report? You know, say, ask what their home life's like. And I think over here in England, we have this, we're very, we're very private, um, which, is, which is our own worst enemy, I think. But we have that stiff upper lip. I think, you know, pie that off, get rid of that. Let's just talk to people. Just say, hey, hey, Tanya, how are you? Are you, are you married or you got any siblings or what are you doing at the moment? Oh, you're doing some extension on your house or you've got some builder work going on. Great. And talk about that a little bit more. Um, I think for me, that's one of the biggest takeaways from this. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, Rosa Carrillo um, mm. uh, wrote a book exclusively about this important aspect to safety that a whole lot of people are not talking about. Yeah. And I think from a safety point of what as, as well, it comes back to that thing where we were talking about, you know, I treat everyone like my sister and stuff like that. It's like, you know, if, if a CEO now sees, or, or not even just a CEO, you know, if the CEO and the managers, you know, they now see their employees as people with names and families and dogs and daughters and sisters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those 
riskier decisions become a lot harder to make. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Yes. Now, now when you're not, you're not treating people like numbers, you know, whether it's a business redesign, a redundancy, to whether it's, you know, a, a really a risky, you know, physically, like from a safety point of view, whether it's, we're doing this big construction project. It's like, it, I think inevitably it would kind of, force you to start managing safety a little bit better because now you actually care about those people they're not just numbers anymore they're people yes i mean this is this is a, a little bit out of context but um sam goodman has been talking a lot about daryl davis who mm. um has it's more on the race relations stuff yeah but you can't hate me if you don't even know me yeah you know that. that you have we need to at least have a relationship in order for you to engage in true hate mm. you know you you can't hate me if you don't even know me i love that and i think that could be true in the workplace too you know you have to know these people before you can even come up with a judgment mm. of hate it's the, mm. you, you, there's nothing there to to base it on if you don't know who you're who they are yeah i really love um like a lot of people don't like the guy but gary vaynerchuk i love the way he talks about it um and he said you know what you can judge me that's fine but judge me when you've got some context and i love yes. that don't judge without context and i i was born and raised quite in a judgmental kind of thing we would judge people i would think people were judging me based on your car based on your house like you know and i've gone through this transition of you know, i i don't know what people are going through i don't know what's going on and and you know it's it's i think there's nothing wrong if you're acknowledging that you used to be a judgy person or even if you used to hate it doesn't i don't really care but but like don't judge about context man get to know someone know the context you know someone do you know what it comes back to what we talk about i can't stand it where people are rude to waiters and waitresses but i still wouldn't judge someone it could just be that on that one day they're at the end of the tether and it was just that one thing. We've all been there where that one thing tips you over the edge. And it's that person that gets the blame when actually it was not their fault. You know, this has been coming for months. Um, so yeah, I, I love that. I haven't listened to those episodes yet. I've got a lot of, uh, I've got a lot of the hot nerd to catch up on actually. I, I, <laughs> don't tell him I said that. Um, but yeah, I got a lot of the hot nerd to catch up on. I listened to it like religiously every day and and then uh, the safety of work podcast took over. Oh, my camera's just gone. I'm still here, even though my face is froze. I'm still here. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to change the battery because we're coming to the end. But yeah, the safety of work podcast took over, and then cautionary tales took over. And now I'll have to go back and check out the hot man. But anyway, um, yeah, Tanya, I'd... just just one thing there that go even on, even though um, somebody lost their cool at a at a waiter, it and you don't understand the whole context and everything you you could still at least acknowledge the behavior right yeah because that's that accountability thing it's still you know not acceptable it's still not acceptable i mean you you do it you know from a genuine uh place and all the rest of it but it still should be done mm -hmm. because it still crosses a line yeah i think i think yeah. you know what i think that's a really good point I think you you can you can have those moments, but you need to acknowledge them and you know, do you know what that that wasn't right? That wasn't right. Mm, I think that's really true. Yes. 
Mm. And sometimes you don't even know, do you? Sometimes like you in the moment, you as a person, it's interesting. It's kind of like, well, if you're in the system, you don't, you can't, you can't critique the system is what we were talking about yesterday and Ron's cool, weren't we? But like, if you're in the moment, you're the person that's being rude. You might not necessarily think you're being rude because that's just, that's right. You in the moment. So you kind of relying on somebody else to go, mm, sorry, Tanya, I thought that was uh, maybe next time we can adjust the way we talk to that person. It's not their fault that the, the, the dinner was wrong or whatever and there's there's all sorts of um you know decorum about that type of conversation you know it shouldn't be public it has to be mm. you should choose your words wisely all this kind of thing but it it doesn't mean that it shouldn't happen mm. because it it you know so often as i had said accountability in that teamwork thing it's on exactly this this area that most teams don't do so well mm. because it is it is these are awkward conversations but they're necessary yeah and it's it, it's only you know it's only through these types of this type of feedback that we're going to know about the the faults that we have you know mm. you can sit down and try to evaluate your own faults but it's going to be that much more reliable if others around you um can can tell you what they think your faults are mm. and tell you you know how accurate your own um list is because we're not actually good self-judgers yeah definitely and that that's going to be hard to hear but if you're doing yes. it from the position where you know we've got our values set right we're doing it from the position of betterment of improving of yes you know i want you to be a better person makes it that little bit easier to hear i think absolutely because the last the last area of teamwork that i didn't talk about was um results you mm. know being attuned to results and there's a whole there's a whole thing with organizational health knowing your what your anchors are knowing what your rallying cry is but that's a whole other conversation but a lot of it we've we've covered in terms of ensuring that you know who you are and why you exist and and uh, having those values well integrated into the way that you or that you run your business run your organization and knowing people like genuinely as people as opposed mm -hmm. to just workers as employees um and um, being able to engage in difficult discussions because you need a lot of this is going to depend on these correcting mechanisms and these difficult discussions are part of these. Yeah, so definitely. Oh, this conversation reminds me so much of one of my favorite conversations I've had on this podcast with a, a lady called Dr. Dara Blumenthal and she's a doctor of sociology and and we just talking about essentially we were talking about psychological safety but she was she'd wrote this like little framework thing it was really cool it was about how to get innovation in the workplace and it was basically talking about all this stuff is you know you've got to create environments where people are she she used the phrase which i love like you've got to create an environment where you're comfortable to be uncomfortable temporarily yes to be challenged and and, and and but that feels comfortable um you know you've got to know your people you have these these kind of meaningful relationships with people um and we, we did like a two-part episode of that and that was yeah it just and this is this resonates with that so much 
Um, and it, to, to me, it just feels... You know, like... it, it, something else that is worth stating is something that, again, not me, almost none of this is me, right? So this is, these are just <laughs> other people. I'm just channeling this to you. Um, uh, Susan David, um, discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. Mm, I love that. You know, she talks about in her TED Talk, you know, that she people uh, go to her saying, oh, I don't like feeling this way. I don't want to do that. I don't want to, for fear of disappointment. You know, I don't want to, you know, I'm going to get hurt if I do it. And she says, you know, I, I hear you, but you have dead people's goals. Only dead people do not get to feel the, you know, the pain of, of a broken heart, of, mm. you know, uh, a, a job uh, that didn't go well, that, you know, all of this kind of thing. But they also don't get to feel the enjoyment of a newborn baby and all the rest uh, of yeah. these things that we do value. Mm. And you have, to, you have to just realize that emotions are a spectrum. They're not binary. It's a whole host of things. And all of them are valuable because they can teach you about yourself and who you are and what you value mm. and can give you so much more meaning in your life if you actually are allowed to sit with these emotions, even the rough ones, mm. because discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. Mm. Wow. Well, great. That, that is a great place to leave it, I think. And, uh, I think a great example of that would be when you buy a dog. That's, that's all I was thinking. You buy a dog knowing, knowing you will outlive them. But the love and, and the relationship you build, you build probably any pet, if I'm honest, but just from my example with a dog, you know, I know I'm going to outlive my dog, but yeah, the, the love and the affection you get from them in the, in the I, would, I, would, I wouldn't replace that for anything in the world. So... But the price of admission is knowing that I'm going to outlive that poor thing. Hmm. Well, that just that just ended on a really somber note, didn't it? Well, I apologize. <laughs> well, well, I feel like I should say something really, really cheery just for people to like not cry. <laughs> so I went to a conference a couple of years ago where Nicholas Pierce was uh, the keynote speaker. So um, he is a management professor who um, was about to publish his book at the time. And he's also um, a preacher, which is an interesting choice for a keynote speaker. And he had asked the audience, um, who do you serve? And he said, if you don't have an answer for that question, you have to think harder. You do serve somebody. You and the more that you look at your work as being of service to others, the more the more value and purpose you're going to be able to find in your work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that that's much that's a much nicer place to leave it like <laughs> that's much better thank you for that tanya like you said you should be a podcast host because i just leave people crying about the death of my dog <laughs> that there's years and years away um but anyway <laughs> anyway well done 
that's that kind of like that stuff in like the Buddhism talks about that, doesn't it? Like the 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 love that you get from being in service and stuff like that. It's a much better place to be. Yes. Anyway, yeah. Tanya, if people want to talk to you more or or even work with you as well, do you want to give us a little a little plug of the business and and how they can get hold of you or read any of your articles and stuff like that? What's the best couple of places to go sure. to? Sure. So, um. My my company name is Beyond Safety Compliance. Um, the URL is exactly that, just you know, beyondsafetycompliance.ca. Um, I am on LinkedIn. My uh, so I'm under I'm on LinkedIn as Tanya Bracket Bartlett Hewitt, I think, because uh, we'll I have my main name in there in case people know me from uh, a different life mm-hmm. and. Um, uh and my email is tanya at beyond safety compliance.ca well we've given out the email that's very brave of you, you, you did you not know this is the world's biggest podcast you have millions of people email you now. <laughs> what are you laughing at why laughing it is the world's biggest podcast you're laughing like you don't believe it's true i'm sure it is i'm sure it is it's a one as i said uh, I, I love. I have loved listening to you and to uh, and to others out there who are trying to you know, right the ship in, in making workplaces better places to be yeah. and, and, and safety just being um, more holistic. Mm. It's, it's awesome how many, there, there's just so many now. Like, it's wicked. Like, I, so many people say to me, oh, you're not worried that there's more and more pockets. I'm like, no, it's wicked. Like, when I started, there were three in the UK. Now there's five. The five might be six. Yeah, one, the other guys started back, so there's six. And um, so six now, uh, and I think back in the U- in 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 like the US side of things and around the world, there was uh, safety on tap uh, in Australia. He's like an old, he's an original gangster. He's Andrew's been going for years. Obviously, yep. Todd's been going for years. Safety FM's been going for years. But if you look at how much like Safety FM's kind of uh, library of other podcasts has has just grown exponentially over the last couple of like years, I would say. Like just phenomenal. You safe uh, the hop nerds, you know, not that not that old. I think um, Sh- Sheldon has just started another one. Uh, yeah. Sorry, he a new one. I can't remember what his is called. Um, you got Pedro doing the X Factor of safety. Like all oh, this stuff is good. Like you know, I, there's so many I can't keep up. I can't. I, I haven't listened to barely any any of them because I just can't keep up anymore. I haven't got enough time in the day. So it's it's inspiring. Like there might there right. might actually be a critical mass to be able to start changing things with the number of people talking about these types of subjects. Mm, definitely. And I also think that it would be a wicked event if we. I keep nudging Jay Allen to be like, you need to arrange an event like a big podcast safety podcast conference where. <laughs> yeah, we all just go and record podcasts live with like a live audience and stuff. It'd be amazing. As long as Jay Allen pays for my flights. <laughs> Otherwise, I can't <laughs> afford it. <laughs> anyway, Tanya, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Wonderful. Well, thank you, James. This is delightful. Okay, peeps. Hope you enjoyed that. Did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy it? I enjoyed it. I loved that conversation. It was a great chat with Tanya. I just like I, like I kept going on and on and on in the interview. I just really enjoy talking to awesome people. And Tanya has made the list of awesome people in James's list of awesome people. There's, there's a lot of people on the list. If I'm honest, it's, it's more like a book now, especially since the podcast. It is more like a book. 
before the podcast, there's a handful of people on there. But ever since then, it is like doubled and it's become a book. And she is on that book. She is 100% in there as awesome people. Did you enjoy it? What do you think about meaningful employment? What does the phrase meaningful employment mean to you? Let me know. Come and talk to me, LinkedIn, James McPherson, and or Rebranding Safety. Check us out on Facebook, Rebranding Safety as well. Or Twitter, Safety Rebranded. I know it annoys me just as much as it annoys you. Come and talk to us. Tell me, what does that phrase mean to you? Meaningful employment. What does it mean to you personally about your employment, your employment being meaningful? And what does it mean to you from a perspective of what you do in work to other people? Are you a manager? Are you a business leader? Are you a safety professional? How do you think you can create meaningful employment for other people in your workplace? Do you manage a small team? Are you talking to people every day? Can you tell that person? Can you tell that cleaner? You really appreciate what they do. How many, how many times have you done that? How many times have you turned around and said, hey, thanks for that? You know, if you've got that kind of receptionist who, who people notoriously treat receptionists like crap, don't they? Like, even though I've worked in, a, I worked in like a really big company that managed property management. And I'll tell you what, a good receptionist is the, like the life bone of a fully operational building. Like, I can't, I'm struggling not to, t- to give away what company it was, but... A good receptionist literally was just the font of all information, was the best resource that you could get. Like you got to a site and a a receptionist is just normally overworked, normally underpaid, but they just got on with it. They knew what you needed to know. And even if they don't know everything, they're just willing to help and they're just nice people. It was a godsend, an absolute godsend from my point of view. And I always worked really hard to take my time with them because I think a lot of people, a lot of roles like that that we take for granted, that we treat like shit, we, we, well, we do that. We treat them like shit. We don't have the time of day for them. Um, these, these people, they feel lonely, you know, cleaners and receptionists. We just, we just assume that they should do it. And I don't think any of us do this consciously, or I hope most of us don't do it consciously, but we do do it. Um, so yeah, I just think, say thank you, tell someone how meaningful their, their role is. Um, you know when you go out on a club? You know when you go out clubbing? I haven't been out clubbing for a long time. But when I went out clubbing, you always had like this geezer in the toilet selling like perfume or what's the deodorant and stuff like that. And this guy we used to go to this club, he used to say, no spray, no lay. <laughs> Which I just, I'll never forget that. He was so funny, man. And I always used to tip him. I, always, I never brought anything, but I always used to give him money. And I just thought it was, I just appreciate you being there. Like he would give you the, the towels or dry your hands. I think a lot of people used to treat him like shit, mainly because they're pissed out of their face, but like used to treat him really poorly. And just like, but this geezer was entertaining. Like this dude is standing in the toilet trying to make some money, man. Like, let's just give him some money. And it was just like, yeah, I just think I've gone off on a tangent here really hard, but like a little bit more gratitude in the world, a little bit more appreciation, a little bit more respect for other people can go a long way. So how can you have that impact 
in your workplace? Can you go and say thank you to the receptionist who just made you a coffee or thank you to the admin person that's just copied your report or thank you to the person that's just transcribed your audio recording or whatever it is. Just say thank you. You know, thank you to the cleaner that turned up. You're working late in the office and they turned up and they're hoovering. And just go over and say, do you know what? Every morning I come in and this place is immaculate. Thank you very much. Thank you. I genuinely would think that would make a massive difference. Someone come over to me and said, James, I've been working here 20 years. You've been here 20 years. And do you know what? I've never really hurt myself. And I thank you for that. That would mean so much to me. And I think we can all do something like that. Well, that got deep real quick, didn't it? I got deep real quick. I told you, this health and wellbeing mini-series is doing something to me, man. It's doing something to me. Don't forget to check out our affiliate partnerships. You've got uh, David McLean. I was trying to remember his episode, his, uh, conver- his name in the last episode. That's his name, David McLean. Um, don't forget to go check out his online course with David McLean. Don't forget to go and check out SafePoint, manage your loan working. The code for SafePoint is rebranding safety. If you want to check either of those out, the, com- the links are in the comments below. Go and buy some merch, people, because it is just awesome. I got some feedback the other day saying that they're really good when they come out of the wash. Like, they wash really good. That means nothing to me because I just wash stuff. I do, I'm not a typical man. I do do some washing, honestly. But, like, I just wash it and then it comes out, like... And that's really it. But this, this person was like, hmm, it washed really well. I don't really know what that means, but apparently they wash really well. Um, so go and buy some merch. Sweatshirts, my favourite, man. Like, love them. So go get yourself some merch, www.rebrandsafety.com. Get yourself some merch. If you get some merch, take a selfie. Even if it's a mug or a tote bag, I want to see it. I want to see you walking around Sainsbury's with a safe as shit tote bag. And... I want you to tweet it to me, Safety Rebranded. I want you to LinkedIn it me. Man, I just, I need to stop saying that. I want you to send it to me on LinkedIn at James McPherson and Rebranded Safety or Facebook at Rebranded Safety as well. Other than that, people, I hope you've enjoyed this health and wellbeing mini series. If you have, let me know. Let's converse with each other on social media. Otherwise, I will catch you next week in the podcast. Safe.